Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. I know we did an introductory episode, but this feels like a moment of some weight, because here we are beginning the narrative in a brand new novel. Well, it's not a new novel. It's new to us. Les Mis by Victor Hugo. You guys, are you excited? So excited. I woke up this morning and I actually had the perspective to think, it is my job to read and discuss books with my friends. That is really cool. It's, it's really pretty cool. awesome. It's a good I life. also had the foresight today, knowing that we would possibly be on video, to wear a tricolored shirt. Oh, look at you. Oh. Yeah, you are. <laughs> Do you hear the people sing? I hear the people sing, yes. <laughs> and I will answer <laughs> in this shirt. Well, we have a, a a very fun section, a change in tone from our usual fare here, I think, today. This is such a long character description, rather than a description of the, of the world of, being, of history. World, our usual fare being War and Peace. Yeah, exactly. Our <laughs> usual fare being War and Peace. This is not War and Peace. It feels very different. I love Victor Hugo's writing style. I'm really enjoying this. I realize I'm reading it in translation, but but it is it is really beautiful, I thought. Did you guys agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting used to it. It's definitely, um, well, there's a lot of it, you know, you're kind of wading through, but there was a lot of it with Tolstoy too. I think that might just be the nature of a book of this, of these proportions, you know, of the stature. It's going to be a little meandering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He definitely meanders. We're going to get a, a thorough, a thorough description of the first character in our story, the Bishop of Dean. Dinya. Dinya. Yeah, I do think his digressions are really significant. He's setting up not just one character of the many that we will encounter, but also like the philosophy of the period and the main ideas. Don't say that he philosophy wants to... of history. Don't do it. I didn't. I didn't say well. <laughs> it's not a philosophy of history. It's just the philosophy of this era that he's trying to write a novel for. And he's trying to pinpoint some ideals that he's going to hearken back to over the rest of the novel. And maybe this main character, and maybe I'm stepping on people's toes here and saying this so early, but I think that this character is an embodiment of an ideal rather than supposed to be a believable guy. And I think I want to talk more about that today. Yeah, me too. I was going to kick it off by saying, is this a believable guy? Well, he literally says that it's not, right? There's a line which I didn't have ready and available. Here it is. It's at the end of chapter two. He says, we do not claim that the portrait we present here is a true one, Mm. only that it comes close. Right. Right. He's telling us like, I'm doing this. I'm using my imaginative powers here. He doesn't tell us why yet, but he is acknowledging like this is not a realistic portrait, which fits into the genre he's working in, right? He's a romantic. He's going to be drawing with ideals, like Megan said, Mm -hmm. and realism is is of a secondary concern. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think that, well, and this is this comes from knowing the story, but I think that one of the things he's asking and maybe even providing an answer to is how much can we know about a person? Um, if what makes them 
valuable and real is the contents of their soul, which are inaccessible to you and maybe even to them. What details do we have to draw a conclusion about a person except their actions toward their fellow man? And that I think that's going to be a pretty big theme as we go along here. You measure a man based on what he does. And there isn't really a philosophical or theological perspective that can get us out of the need to do that. We have to be measuring ourselves and one another by the fruits of our actions. Do you all see what I meant when I said you start the novel and you go, wait, where's Jean Valjean? Who is so this? Much. Yeah, so much. Exactly. <laughs> well, he also starts in the very beginning of book one by saying in the second paragraph, although it in no way concerns our story. And then, <laughs> and then for the entirety of book one called Fontaine, we don't get a mention of Fontaine. No, I don't know <laughs> who this lady is. Much less Jean Valjean. <laughs> this actually, professedly by the author, has nothing to do with the, the primary plot that he's going to tell us. It's a device. This whole book one is a device in the part of the author providing us with something else. And what Emily said about Hugo being a romantic, I think is a fascinating paradox because what he's doing here is on the one hand, not providing you realism, not giving you a character that is like life on the page. But he's also really concerned with validating the existence of this character with other sources. He's referencing the gossip, the rumors that he's heard about him. He's referencing the financial documents that he's found about this guy mm -hmm. and the letter that, that Madame Baptistine has written. And he redacts the, the name of the conventionist. Right, exactly. And There's of like, the senator. Yeah, attention to historical accuracy, even as he's, he's not trying for realism. What did you guys think about that? What's the purpose there? Well, that's a great question. It's, it's more fitting to the writing of his own time, right? By the time he's writing, romanticism has kind of gone out the window and we are getting to a more realistic time. And authors like Melville, Hawthorne on the other side of the ocean, yeah. or Austin does this, right? They, they use things like that, like the redactions or the letters or, or the insistence on historical uh, documents, to add some weight to what they're trying to say to make it look as though it's something something real and and something worth paying attention to it reminded me of the time period that came before him where novelists felt like they had to justify their project that people didn't see a novel or a narrator in a novel as worth listening to like why would you just jump into someone's story and listen to their life if they had didn't have a uh, something to teach you or relevance to your life that would convince you that a novel has merit it's like he's calling back to that older generation and saying let me justify the worth of this project it's going to teach you something but that isn't as much of an issue when he's writing so the fact that he continues to do that is interesting, interesting. It, yeah one thing that it does is it breaks up his own first person, like omniscient narrative of mm -hmm. the character and forces us to look at this character from a variety of different angles, right? And we're seeing like, Ian, actually, it connects to what Ian was saying, right? We can only see him through his actions. And now we're being in invited to see him through the historical evidence he left behind his receipts, his budget, his letters, what other people said about him, right? Like, right. We're, we're seeing evidence of his life, even though he's a fictional character. Yeah, I like that. Before we really dive in, though, I know that last time we talked, Megan was interested in discussing the oh, yeah. preface that yeah. Hugo leaves us from Hopeville House. I was thinking I would read it out loud and, yeah, then, and then sick Megan on it and see what she saw in here. I mean, it's obviously really interesting. Megan, do you know, is this... Is this spoken by one of the characters? Is this a is this 
from the author himself. Oh, I had understood that this is from the author himself, like a preamble to the work. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Hope Bill House is where he's writing in the Guernsey Islands in England in exile. Okay. There we go. So Hugo gives us this to kick off his novel. So long as there shall exist, by reason of law and custom, a social condemnation, which in the midst of civilization artificially creates a hell on earth and complicates with human fatality a destiny that is divine. So long as the three problems of the century, the degradation of man by the exploitation of his labor, the ruin of woman by starvation, and the atrophy of childhood by physical and spiritual night, are not solved, so long as in certain regions social asphyxia shall be possible. In other words, and from a still broader point of view, so long as ignorance and misery remain on earth, there should be a need for books such as this. That's quite a line. It's hard to know where to begin in talking about this this little introduction because he is, well, I think that he has boiled down and distilled the essence of his novel, or at least the purpose as he sees it of this work of art. It's a work of fiction, but he intends for it to comment on the the social truths or the the things that he's passionate about changing in his social scene. He names the primary problems that he thinks are at the heart of the social issues of his time. And he wants to talk about human nature and how humanity interacts with the divine. He's put all of that into one tiny paragraph, or I mean, it it looks like one sentence. Mm -hmm. It is one sentence. It's a very long sentence. It's a very long, (laughs) very long romantic sentence. But his stated goal here at the beginning is every bit as broad and sweeping as Tolstoy's In War and Peace. He intends to write the epic of his generation. That's interesting. Uh, Thematically, with the section we're talking about today, I see that he is combining religious language or like spiritual language, theological language even, with social issues, right? It's a social condemnation. It's it's the ruin of women, the degradation of man. There are he is he even says that what happens is we're creating an artificial hell on earth. Religious connotations. So there are yeah, religious connotations to a material earthbound problem. He also references that word ignorance as the source of all of man's misery which is something that that dying revolutionary also says. He says the problems with all of all of uh, France in the day of the reign of terror was the ignorance of the monarchy, the ignorance of the royalists. And so that's the problem that he and his fellows sought to bring down. And he's not sorry on his deathbed that that is what he went to war against. And I think that was an interesting section I hope we talk more about because I think Hugo might be standing with him in some ways and saying, yes, ignorance is the problem, but ignorance of what? Let's talk about that, you know? Mm, I like that. I like that a lot. So let's dive into book one, appropriately titled Fontaine. Chuckle, chuckle. (laughs) Since we haven't met the woman yet. And talk about Monsieur Muriel. Yeah, our section for today is called An Upright Man. So it's a portrait of Megan. I was going to invite you to say his full name for us. Okay, no pressure. I, okay, I think it's Monsieur Charles Francois Bienvenu Muriel. Awesome. Yeah. So <laughs> Bienvenu means welcome, 
And I think it is part of his name, but also it becomes his nickname because of the way that he interacts with his community. He is, he is very concerned that wherever he goes, there's a spirit of welcome to all of his fellow man around him. So they call him Monseigneur Bienvenu, which is a funny little uh, oxymoron. Monseigneur is, is a, a term of honor, even higher mm-hmm. than Monsieur. So it denotes his place in society and it's supposed to be an honorific. But Bienvenu is a silly little nickname and it's a familiar term. So he's both at once. I love how he opens this second paragraph on the first page here. Whether true or false, what is said about men often has as much influence on their lives and particularly on their destinies as what they do. Mm. I wonder if that is true based on our reading for today. Because it seemed to me, and Emily and I were talking about this off the air, it seemed to me that he's giving us a character whose life and reputation depend entirely on his ceaseless activity. Mm-hmm. He, is, he has lived in a particular way and continues to despite all sorts of hardships and suffering and opposition. And that is what makes him who he is. His actions make him who he is. So why does he, why does he assure us here in the beginning that what is said about a man is as important as what he does to his destiny? Well, he changed, the bishop changes what is said about him, right? He starts out as royalist, an aristocrat who is, becomes an immigré during the reign of terror, which was anyone who left France after Bastille Day. The, the conventionists, the revolutionaries yeah. condemned to the guillotine anyone who left France and would come back during that time. They were considered to be exiles of France. And so he leaves and he, it, we're told that he was a, well, he, he was kind a of violent and a yeah. wastrel and he partied <laughs> it up in Europe, a womanizer. And then something happened while he was over there. And when he returned, he was a priest and all of his past life are that like, that's the rumors that he's referring to in that line that people kind of look askance at him because they recall who he was. He was a married man when he left. His wife dies when he's abroad, and and they all talk about it. But through his behavior, when he returns over time, he's able to change what the people around him say about him. Yeah, I love the way that Hugo put that. He he quantifies life in a small town with this phrase: Monsieur Muriel had to submit to the fa- the fate of every newcomer in a small town where many tongues talk but few heads think. Although he was a bishop, in fact, because he was, he had to submit. So there's, there's like Ian was saying, his, his identity is determined by the gossip linked with his name. But there seems to be, he re-enters society as a new man, as a priest, and it's not associated with his past life at all. This, what he called an inner blow, a mysterious inner blow, has changed him so significantly that there's no relation to the man that he was in the past. That's the sense that I got. Yeah, I think you're right. Yep. But also, to an earlier point, we actually do only know about him based on what at least the narrator has told us, right? There's a sense in which the documentation, the, all the realistic details we were referring to, we are getting to know him through what other people say about him. So it's true. I mean, the fact that the that he's not a realistic portrait, like consciously on the narrator's part he says this is not like this is close but it's not real that kind of points to that line as well which seems like it's going to be thematically appropriate for the whole book right people are going to be known by what other people say about them which is not always the truth 
because the truth is in how they comport themselves yeah. and what they actually do. Yeah, the result is that after nine years of being the Bishop of Dean, all the tales of his previous life, which are initially engrossing to small towns and petty people, are entirely forgotten, and nobody would dare to speak of them and even remember them because of the weight of his actions in the community. So he has with him two old women that we're introduced to here in this first chapter. One, his sister, Mademoiselle Baptistine, and the other, her companion, Madame Magloire. Is that right, Megan? Yeah. Nailed the, it. Nailed oh, it on the pronunciation. I, you kind of double you kind of create a W. Magloire. Like that. Nice. What what do we know about these ladies? I thought the description of his sister in particular was very, very interesting. Yeah. Super weird. She's described kind of like an angelic being. Like she has so much spiritual life that she's forgotten she has a body at all. And she's kind of pale and almost translucent. She's a little bit diaphanous, you know? <laughs> wow, what a word. There you go. You're welcome. That reminds me of a description we get of the bishop at the end of our section where it says that he had this violent temper before, but he had such a conviction that over time, like water creating holes in rocks, his conviction wears away at his temper and he becomes gentle. I am torn about whether or not we're supposed to wholeheartedly be approving or enthusiastic about this description of Baptistine. I think that she's a complex character in this section. How come? Which part gave you pause? Well, right away, all of my personal alarm bells go off when it talks about uh, her becoming transparent and ethereal. Mm -hmm. And later it says uh, she was obedient, or both her and Magloire are obedient to the point of disappearing. And that makes me nervous because to me that sounds like some kind of um i think it's gnosticism when you believe in in the spiritual gnosis and you think that material bodies earth are evil are evil and what's really good is is the spiritual realm so that sets off some personal alarm bells but then later on we get we'll talk about this i'm sure but her letter to her friend about her brother i think is interesting too yeah, the idea of renunciation threads its way through this whole section. I mean, it kind of defines the life of the bishop, right? Mm -hmm. Sending all of his wealth that's due to his position, right? Sending it all away. I mean, with very, very few exceptions. I think he keeps, what, 1500 for his own like upkeep and for the mm -hmm. upkeep of these two old ladies. So there's there's financial renunciation. There's personal renunciation. He doesn't, he doesn't ever buy new clothes. There's almost no furniture in his house. There's this, this section, I think is at the beginning of this next chapter, that reads like concrete poetry, which I thought was really interesting. We get a long paragraph describing the palace of the bishop. Oh, yeah. But next door on the grounds is a hospital, which is appropriate given that part of the ministry of the church is to take care of the, of the sick, right? So he shows up, him and his retinue, which consists of only these two old ladies, and we get this long, beautiful description of him being walked through his palace. And that long description is followed by this sentence. The hospital was a narrow two-story building with a small garden. Mm, yeah. And that's it, right? It's, it's, it's concrete poetry. On the page, you can see wealth is vast, and the path that he will choose is very, very narrow. And I think that's really, really interesting to me. So it's renunciation in his living quarters, and ultimately we'll see as well that that renunciation is taking place in his heart as he overcomes being a man of his own time. 
um, having political opinions and having prejudices that he can't shake even after all of these years mm-hmm. in his conversation with the it's conventionist, right? Yeah, yeah, conventionist. With the, the old dying conventionist. So what do you guys think of that? I mean, obviously, renunciation has been at the heart of the Christian religion since the very beginning, to one extent or another. But with Emily's comment about Gnosticism and, or, or dualism, we could say, right, the idea that the physical world is necessarily bad and needs to be avoided if the spiritual life is to flourish, does Hugo take it a, a step far here for our taste? I don't know. I That's where I would recall to our minds the fact that he's not supposed to be a real character. He is the embodiment of an ideal. What he does in renouncing all of that for himself is becomes a conduit. He's a dispenser of all of the things, all of the physical need meeting that the poor require of him. So Mm, it's not mm -hmm. that he's saying the physical is not worth thinking about, transcend, become a spiritual being like this angelic figure. He's, he's emphasizing that a high calling is to, to dispense the goods that you have out to people who need them. So he's, this guy is, I don't know how better to say it. He's the ideal of generosity, Mm put on flesh, you know? Yeah, I think that's true. Go ahead, Emily. I do think that's true. I just as a to continue the conversation on page 13, he is speaking. I'm not entirely sure to who I think it's just a a recounting of his words to people. But he says, man has a body that is both his burden and his temptation. He drags it along and gives into it. He ought to watch over it, keep it in bounds, repress it, and obey it only as a last resort. It may be wrong to obey even then, but if so, the fault is venial. It is a fall, but a fall onto the knees, which may end in prayer. And so in context, he it's actually like, it's really beautiful sentiment. He's saying, let's see how the fault's crept in when someone sins, right? He's a, He smilingly described himself as an ex-sinner. Uh, he's not a rigid moralist, but uh, at the same time, his comments about the body being a burden and a temptation, again, make me a little nervous. Although, if you read one more passage past where you stopped, he admits, to live entirely without sin is the dream of an angel. Everything on this earth is subject to sin. Sin is like gravity. So so again, here's the ideal. If we could all be perfect, here's what we would strive for. And maybe there is some Gnosticism in that in the principle that he wants us to strive for. But he does acknowledge the reality as well, which is sin Mm -hmm. is like gravity and you're all held down, fall to your knees, you know? Right. Mm. It's enough. It's enough to catch your attention. I'm curious about him. I don't think I didn't get the sense that he is a Gnostic, although maybe he's flirting with it. No, I don't, I don't get that sense either. And I like what you said, Megan, about his renunciation being the seeing the needs around him and furthermore, owning them as his, as his own. He's not actually trying to rise above need. He is meeting his own needs from his own perspective, right? This is why he calls, his, calls it his household budget. Right. Right? His household mm-hmm. includes all of these people. His vision of being a, a bishop and being a priest is that all the needs of the community belong to him, and it is his, it is his responsibility to meet all of them. And I think that personal touch... Uh, sort of rescues us from whatever Gnostic suggestions there might be. I so I'm like I'm taking the position of like offering counterpoints, and I feel like I'm being Ian. <laughs> <laughs> I know. How does it feel? Well, it's I'm about being... <laughs> time someone besides me did it. <laughs> but I just want to say I like yeah. I agree with you guys. Like I do think we're supposed to admire the bishop overall. He is a beautiful example of Christian charity, and the things that I'm pointing out, I think, are just examples of 
Hugo's romanticism. Yes. And it's a genre thing, like Megan is saying. It's However, an exaggeration. Right. Mm-hmm. I do, when Ian said he takes care of the people around him, I do want to say, but does he take care of his sister? Oh, yeah. And Great her housekeeper. What, which chapter is the letter? Here it is. Chapter nine. The brother portrayed by the sister. She says things like, I am still happy. My brother is so good. He gives all he has to the poor and sick. We are sometimes left with little. The weather here is very harsh in winter, and one must do something for those in need. At least we have some warmth and light, which are great comforts, as you know. Later she says, Madame Magloire has had more difficulty getting used to what she calls his imprudence. Now we have adapted. We pray together. We are afraid together. And then we go to sleep. Even if Satan came into the house, no one would interfere. After all, what is there to fear in this house? There is always one who's with us who's strongest. Satan may visit our house, but the good Lord lives here. And then she ends with, my health is tolerable, tolerable, though I grow thinner every day. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. And we're told things like, she really wanted a nice sofa, but it cost 500 francs and she only had 42 I don't know. There just seems to be this tension in what she says in that letter between like she's really trying to convince her friend that her brother's holy and she like admires him and she's on board with this lifestyle. But you can kind of see peeking through like it gets really cold in the winter time, and we have a hard time finding stuff to eat and I'm growing really thin. You know, there's just like this there's this doubt that she seems to be wrestling with. It's very human. But there it is. What do you think, Megan? Well, I don't know. I'm just, I'm still thinking, I'm chewing on it because right before the passage where we get to hear Madame Baptistine's letter and and we're called to have compassion for her situation and through her also for the bishop and all that he's denying himself, there's a big long conversation between the bishop and this rich guy who wants to talk about philosophy, the philosophy of yeah, wealth senator, and materialism. Right? Yeah, it's his senator, mm-hmm. yeah. And he says, really, his senator says really strong things basically rejecting the importance of God, calling God a myth, like a a monstrous myth. And that he says that the people of his generation, like the bishop, have been duped by the infinite. And he instead professes hedonism. He says, we live for today because tomorrow we die. Better to, to enjoy pleasure than suffering. And if you can get pleasure for yourself in these few days that you have, then do that instead. Put off all of the suffering of of humanity as long as you can. There's nothing after. Right. There is neither good nor evil. There is only vegetation. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's super dark. He says it's all fairy tales. Religion is all fairy tales. Goblins for children, God for men. This is something that you cling to to comfort yourself. Our tomorrow is night. Yeah, in the face of an abyss. Exactly. And the bishop claps his hands and laughs. And says something to the effect of, cling to your materialism. That's great, so long as you're rich. You have the luxury of being a materialist because you're wealthy. And in that, I heard Hugo again. We're circling back around that problem of society that has three three arms or three consequences in the community. And he is, I think, because it is a work of romanticism, trying to stir up our emotions about the plight of the poor. And each of these, each of these touches on the material world are supposed to strike a chord in us, whether it be convicting us of how much we have or calling out of us compassion for the plight of those who don't have anything. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I think that in in the the phrase social justice is actually worked into the novel back on page 16 after he has ministered to a man who's been sentenced to death at the guillotine. And this really affects him. And so I want to read this and see what you guys think. The impression was horrible and profound. On the day after the execution and for many subsequent days, the bishop seemed overwhelmed. The violent calm of the fatal moment had disappeared. The phantom of social justice took possession of him. He who ordinarily looked back on all his actions with such radiant satisfaction now seemed to be filled with self-reproach. At times he would talk to himself, muttering dismal monologues. One evening his sister overheard and jotted down the following, I didn't believe it could be so monstrous. It's wrong to be so absorbed in divine law as not to perceive human law. Death belongs to God alone. By what right do men touch that unknown thing? So on the one hand, yes, I think Hugo is portraying in this romantic with this romantic palette the issues of his own era when it comes to politics and and matters of of social arrangement but also he's trying to link those things up with the spiritual mm-hmm. with religious concerns with how it stands between god and and man and so i i don't get the sense that this is dickensian if you'll if you'll permit me right that, a victorian screed yeah right exactly it doesn't read like a victorian screed it reads instead like like a meditation on how man considers himself with relationship to God and the effects that that has in the world around him. And the solutions that he's calling for are coming from the church, right? He's, it's a, the church is part of the problem, but the figure that is changing his lifestyle in order to minister to those around him is the voice of the church, right? Mm-hmm. So it's both, right? This conservative church figure is... It both represents a problem and the solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, doesn't he say at one point in conversation with another powerful man, he says, I need you to give, look at the needs of your community. And the guy says, I have my own poor. And the bishop answers, give them to me. It's it's my job, it's the church's job to take on the needs of the poor in the community. And I'm willing and I'm eager and give them to me. Yeah. Another ideal response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the claiming of the needs of the community for the self. Right. This is my responsibility and I will take it. So what do we do then? Because it's not um, it's not exclusively this golden halo that we see painted over over Mm -hmm. his head, because there's also the conversation with the conventionist, who's an old man who is because he didn't vote to have the king executed, has been allowed to remain in France instead of being exiled or killed, but has been shunned by his community for the rest of his days, has been living in this little ravine by himself and word reaches reaches the bishop who's never visited this man that the man is sickly and he's going to die and so he's sort of convicted and realizes well it's my job to go up and see this guy i'm going to go i'm going to go do it but but the scene that i expected based on the golden halo doesn't <laughs> take place and i thought it was really powerful what did you guys make of that scene well i think what you're leading us towards i definitely acknowledge as well that this is a scene where we get to see we get to see Monsieur Bienvenu behave like a man rather than like an angel. And he's, he's clinging to some political ideals that make him heartless in this moment rather than like a well of compassion as we've seen him be before. 
and he has a really, he's never been to visit this guy before. This Monseigneur Bienvenu, he even goes to the mountains where there are bandits and braves, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. death and, and wild men. He will not be kept from any member of his flock. And yet this guy who lives in his town, he's never gone to see. So it's like evidence that he's got, what's the word I'm looking for? That he's got a, not blind a grudge. Spot. Yeah, a blind spot, a political blind spot that won't allow him to recognize well, the humanity of this guy. He's also aware of it, right? I mean, we're given an, a little monologue in his head where he says, the shepherd should not recoil from the diseased sheep. Oh, but such a black sheep. Mm -hmm. Which makes perfect sense. I mean, I think he can't help but be a man of his own time. And so here he is faced with what he considers to be the heart of evil. But what does he actually find when he has a conversation with this man? Well, they have common ground. And, and it's significant because this guy is his his opposite in character, right? The bishop is a conservative royalist from the church, and this is a revolutionary progressive, probably atheist or agnostic, right, who who comes from the other side of the the political fence. And when they they meet, they actually have a lot in common. Yeah, I it seemed to me that they were both approaching the same conclusion from completely different sides. And that might, that, that might be part of the thematic conversation that Hugo is setting up. There's a line where the conventionist says, they are the same, conscience is science. So from the angle of human reason, and, and if, I mean, maybe we could just strip it down and say, the issues of society are what motivate this conventionist. This is why he's done all these things. He sees oppression and he sees a bloated aristocracy that's not doing its job, sees a, a, kingship, that's, a kingship that's bereft of any kind of honor. And so he has taken steps to aid the plight of mankind by working in the political sphere. And so for him, it's, it's, it's numbers, it's math, it's reason, it's enlightenment. It's enlightenment ideas, yeah. Yeah, right. it's all the enlightenment. And that's the name of the chapter, right? The, the man of the light. In strange light, yeah. The bishop in, uh, in unfamiliar, unfamiliar light. Whereas the bishop comes at all those issues from an explicitly religious, faith-oriented perspective, but sees all of the same problems. He's completely unprepared for this. And, and what we find instead is that he, he asks for a blessing, from this man that he came to bless. Mm -hmm. He came from his own perspective in a position of strength that he's acquired over many, many, many years of renunciation. And instead, he finds himself in need of forgiveness and a blessing from this dying man. I love to think of this conversation as a further personification of ideals and positions, particularly on the bottom of page 39. The, the bishop says, a judge speaks in the name of justice. The priest in the name of pity, which is only a more exalted justice. They seem to be two sides of a response to the problem of society that Hugo is addressing. One is we take matters into our own hands. We become the arbiters of justice through social change. And, and that way lies revolution and the guillotine eventually, right? On the other hand, we, we look for pity. We call on religious power to work a change from the inside out in our in our brothers and that's the side that the bishop is standing on it's one of compassion and mercy and humility and religious ideals um i think he's trying to by putting these two men in the same room and letting them work on one another 
He's trying to make us hold those two truths in tension. As we look at the two of them, we're supposed to hold those those ideas side by side in our hearts. I'm not sure what his answer is going to be, but I think that might be the project of his whole work to put that compassion in that heart side by side with some kind of action, Action. some kind of social action. Yeah. Yeah. But I also, I think he does suggest an answer here in this, in this passage, actually, because even if the, if the priest's perspective is this is a higher justice, so that leaves the religious imagery on top in this battle between these two perspectives. What unites the two of them is their shared misunderstandings of one another. The bishop showed up with an idea of who this conventionist was, and based on his activity in his life, uh, treats him in a particular way. What he finds is that the conventionist has the same set of misconceptions about him. He talks about how his carriage is probably parked off down the road and talks about his wealth. And yeah. we know, and so does the bishop, that that's a profound misunderstanding. He doesn't actually know who I am. Mm-hmm. And from that vantage point, both of them being misunderstood by one another, yeah. we can see a little bit more clearly that what you say is true. They're, they are two men conceiving of their own activity in the world mm-hmm. as the solution to the world's problems. And if it's not true of the conventionist, maybe it isn't true of the bishop either. Yeah, Maybe actually where answers to these questions come from is in the moment of the conventionist's death. When he looks up at the heavens, which is what our bishop does every single night, right? He sits out in his garden and he considers the sky and looks at the stars and and thinks about God. We see the conventionists do the same thing. He looks up to heaven and he realizes this ultimate truth that I have been serving must have a me. It must be a person. That so yeah, that was beautiful. A lot of people think that that is Hugo's position at the time of the writing of the novel. The oh thou oh, ideal thou alone dost exist, and the fact that the the infinite must have a me, and the me is God, the the intelligence of the infinite. Yeah. Do you mind? Can we read this little section? Because I had to read Please it do. a couple yeah. different times in order to understand. It's kind of the ramblings of a dying man a little bit, but I could feel there was significance in it, and I needed to nail it down. So, he, the the dying man says, "Oh thou looking up at the heavens, oh thou oh ideal thou alone dost exist." The bishop felt an inexpressible emotion. After a brief silence, the old man raised his finger toward heaven and said, The infinite exists. It is there. If the infinite had no me, the me would be its limit. It would not be the infinite. In other words, it would not be, but it is. Then it has a me. This me of the infinite is God. The dying man pronounced these last words in a loud voice and with a shudder of ecstasy as if he saw someone. When he had spoken, his eyes closed. Someone, so, a personal. Yeah. yeah, someone. There's, It's an acknowledgement of, of the infinite me. And it's also attention. It's an ideal, which is an abstract, but he acknowledges that it, the infinite, which is an abstract, to be the infinite, it must encompass the subjective and therefore must be personal in some way. Yeah, that's really well put. Yeah, it's interesting. So Hugo started his life as as a royalist and ended as a socialist. And so there are, I think that these are two sides of our author in this section as well. On the other hand, yeah, I think you're right. But he can't, based on the outcome of the of the conventionist's perspective, right? Yeah. Based on the guillotine and based on all of the all of the suffering and hardship, even in that move towards socialism, he can't wholeheartedly endorse this social justice way of of living. And I think we get a picture maybe even more clearly of Hugo's perspective in the chapter A Qualification, which comes right after this experience, where he sort of ends by saying the bishop was not a philosopher. 
nor was he a politician. In fact, the fruit of his life came from him leaving those questions up to other people and saying, eh, what I have been given, in particular, the responsibility that I've been given to care for those in my immediate orbit is enough for me. And I don't need to answer all of those questions. All I need is is some flowers to to till and a sky to look at at night. And it's a it's another step forward in renunciation, I suppose, but not in the sense of trying to build one's own spiritual resume, more so in the sense of understanding the limits of one's finitude and to say, I am actually, I'm small in the, in the broad scope of things and and I don't need to do anything but take care of what's in front of me. And I think Hugo recommends that perspective to us, even as he sets out to write a work that um, that encompasses the whole of the human problem. <laughs> When you were mentioning the senator earlier who said all of life is vegetation, and he means that as like a dead materiality, my thoughts immediately went to this section where our bishop gardens and spends his night among the vegetation and is like, he's like a Francis of Assisi, right? He like, Mm -hmm. he avoids (laughs) insects. He like avoids killing insects and he twisted his ankle to avoid stepping on ant. Uh, He's overly conscious of the animation of the vegetation. I loved the line, it's earlier than this, but where he talks about how his pastimes are reading and gardening, and mm-hmm. it's all gardening. It's all gardening, to, yeah. Yeah, I loved that. The mind is a garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that too. What did you guys think of Hugo's discussion of success in this, in this section? In passing, we might say that success is a hideous thing. It's false similarity to merit deceives men. Or when he says, who knows how easily ambition disguises itself under the name of a calling, possibly in good faith and deceiving itself in sanctimonious confusion. Right. He's talking, of course, about the little um, the little cadre of aspiring bishops that gathers around a bishop that has power. And but but the discussion itself was about how much can a man actually change his stars? How much can his efforts and his ambition um, take him somewhere good? And I, I, what do you guys think? What is his answer? I'm sorry, you guys, but this reminds me of Tolstoy. Win in the lottery and you are an able man, he says sarcastically, mm-hmm. right? Like you can, <laughs> you're the great man. You can affect your stars. <laughs> and uh, he seems to be citing, you know, Tolstoy was a great admirer of Hugo. And, and like when he, and what is art, when he like basically destroys all of Western art and calls it not art, he says Hugo is an exception. <laughs> So, <laughs> whoa, anyway, that's a sidetrack, but I thought it was really beautiful. Hmm. I am not going to lie to you. I don't know where you're reading from. So I'm a little bit, uh, a little bit lost. Oh yeah. This is, this <laughs> is from towards the end, the solitude of Monsignor Bienvenue. Oh, okay. I'm in the wrong chapter. Our readers may also be. Oh yeah, there it is. Okay. What did you think about it? And you, you seem to have some opinions about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I just think, and again, this might, this might just be due to the fact that I live in in 2022 in America, but we're, we are obsessed as human beings with success. Our goal is to having started somewhere, get to somewhere else that looks better to us. And usually it's associated with wealth, uh, with titles, with respect. And Hugo seems to repudiate that perspective and seems to imply that, that the Bishop's life is a better one, not because it's holier, but because it is simpler and that he really does have all he needs in his garden and in the, in the, in the stars and I wonder what you guys think about that. It's attractive to me, given that we're all, like I said, in 21st or whatever century we are in, in America and trying to make our way in a world that rewards a particular kind of backbiting and, and manipulation of 
of the people around us to improve our circumstances. I, I don't know if this, if this is exactly where you want to go with this, but I noticed when I read this part that the conversation about success immediately follows some ugly underbelly of the church that he points out, a kind of hierarchy within the church structure and this vying for position that's present even among the clergymen. He says on page 50, every cowl may dream of the tiara. In our day, the priest is the only man who can regularly become a king. And what a king, the supreme king. So what a nursery of aspirations is a seminary. How many blushing choir boys, how many young abbeys have the ambitious dairymaid's pail of milk on their heads? Who knows how easily ambition disguises itself under the name of a calling, possibly in good faith and deceiving itself in sanctimonious confusion. That seems to be apropos, given that what he's going to talk about next is success and whether or not you can attain it. And I think maybe he is urging us to consider even Monseigneur Bienvenu as, I don't know, as susceptible to this kind of of idealizing of success in his own realm. Just because it's holy, it's a holy realm, doesn't mean he's not he's not getting some identity from the kind of guy that he is and this sanctimonious confusion. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that line as turned back around on on the bishop. I mean, it seems to, it seems Maybe it's a on its face. I don't know. I, I, it makes sense to me. I mean, it, on its face, it's about the, the people that don't gather around him because he right. won't help them get anywhere. Yeah. And it's a, it's a reason for his loneliness because he's, he's not offering anyone a path to success. And so no one wants to be where he is. That might be more consistent with the rest of the passage. But I don't know. One of the other things going on there is he's saying, this is the impact of society at large on the church. And to, to zoom in on the bishop specifically, this is the impact of society at large on the human heart. We are made for the kind of life that the bishop is living. That's the life that we're called to and the life that, in which the human spirit actually thrives. But instead, what we all chase is what he calls um, the advice which falls drop by drop from the overhanging corruption, which is succeed. That's the advice that we're given. And I think he intends to say that is actually not what's going to cause your heart to thrive. It just isn't. And I, I agree with him. I think I agree with him about that. I do want to, want to clarify, though, that I don't think I'm reading it correctly when I apply that to a criticism of Monsieur Bienvenu, because his purpose in this chapter is to be an ideal of a good way of living or mm-hmm. an ideal of uh, a virtue that, that all men should strive for if they would be happy. And immediately after this, this rousing statement about the depravity of even those within the church. Hugo says that Bienvenu is not, he doesn't fit in with this community of strivers. And like you said, it's why he is alone. It's why he doesn't have a following of young clergymen. And I think probably he's not criticizing him. I think it's helpful though. It's a helpful thought experiment because we do see him not, this is afterwards, but we do see him being sanctimonious with the conventionist. He's tempted by it as we all are. And if he is the ideal, if he's the model for the story, his response to recognizing that in himself is to kneel for repentance. So I think that's a that's a helpful softening of his character because otherwise it would be really easy to see his life as just a re another way to define success, right? 
you don't have to succeed by having honor and titles and money, but you do have to succeed in being perfectly holy and virtuous. Right. And there's a severity to that as well. But because he's painted Muriel with a flaw, we can see that all things tend towards being on our knees, right? Yeah, I think that's true. And the other the other distinction that I'm I'm thinking about now is that his behavior and his generosity, we're told, comes from a conviction that filters down into his heart over many, many years of effort. But his contentment doesn't come from that. His contentment comes from the way a human being is. And the fact that that a little garden to walk in and immensity to reflect on is enough. And so I think that distinction might be really important. He he isn't he isn't content because of the way he has decided to live his life. He's content because this has been given to him, a garden and a sky. Mm-hmm. And I can hear Hugo saying, You have those things too. Right. Well, even the Especially if the mind is a garden. Things. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mm-hmm. come down to how you decide to act in your life. Contentment comes from the gift given to all mankind of a garden to tend and the heaven above you, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Even, even that line you're referencing, Ian, I thought that that was actually a very encouraging line because... Yeah, where is that line? Uh, the, Page 55. No eff, uh, no mention of effort is made, actually, in that line. Yeah. It's simply a, convention, a conviction, like a heart-level ascent that over time works its way out into his behavior. Mm. So even that is a position of rest uh, that, that has worked its way out into the way that he, he conducts himself. So he's not, cause like even it's, it always like the temptation is always the sanctimoniousness, right? right. To, I like to wake up every day and say, well, I'm going to give all of my stuff to the poor. I'll strive today. Make me, yeah, yeah, I'll strive today. Well, that, it's not. That's not who he is. Yeah, he b- truly believes in his heart that his duty is to to give all that he has to those around him because of because he loves them. Right. The conviction is that he loves the poor. Well, and also there's a sense of contemplation here that Hugo recommends that I think is at odds with the idea of of striving. It says he contemplates, this is page 54, he contemplated the grandeur and the presence of God, the eternity of the future, that strange mystery, the eternity of the past, a stranger mystery, all the infinities hidden deep in every direction. And without trying to comprehend the incomprehensible, he saw it. He did not study God. He was dazzled by him. He reflected on the magnificent union of atoms which give visible forms to nature, revealing forces by recognizing them, creating individualities in unity, proportions and extension, the innumerable in the infinite, and through light producing beauty. These unions are formed and dissolving continually, from which come life and death. So there's a sense in which he is actually acted upon by all of the things around him. And the implication is maybe he's also acted upon by the presence of the poor. Maybe he's acted upon by the presence of need. and, and Because he experienced it himself, right? In his right. exile in Europe. Mm-hmm. He, he, his sympathies were awakened. Yeah, I'm going back. I'm trying to find that section. Just that one reference to how the change came about. Because he was a wastrel and then there's one sentence and suddenly he's a priest. And I wonder if there's anything to plumb in that one sentence. Yeah, it just says, in the midst of flirtations and diversions that consumed his life at that time, he was suddenly overcome by one of those mysterious inner blows that sometimes strike the heart of the man who could not be shaken by public disasters of his life and fortune. I don't know. We don't, we don't get to see what the inner blow was. 
But Mm -hmm. I think we can infer that it had to do with watching the suffering of his fellow, his fellow aristocrats. The sentence before ended with, it's terrifying, particularly to the exiles who witnessed from afar magnified by horror. So empathy, maybe? Yeah, I think so, too. But I think it's important. I mean, Hugo seems to emphasize that it's not an intellectual change that comes over him, that it's a heart level change, that all of this comes from his heart. Um, And and on page 56, towards the end of our reading for the day, he says, however that may be, there are men on earth, if they are nothing more who distinctly perceive the heights of the absolute and the horizon of their contemplation, and who have the terrible vision of the infinite mountain. Monsignor Bonvenu is not one of those men. He was not a genius. He would have dreaded those sublime heights from which even some very great men like Swedenborg and Pascal have slipped into insanity. Certainly these tremendous reveries have their moral use, and by these arduous routes there is an approach to ideal perfection, but for his part he took the shortcut. The Gospels. So it's not a product of superior intellect. It's not a product of dedication to unraveling the mysteries of the world. He doesn't look around, see a problem, and search in his mind for a solution. He simply is inspired by the things going on in his heart and acts unselfconsciously. I would be really curious to know what the French is for the words inner blow, because in the English, the word blow has multiple connotations, right? It's a it's a knock, like a hard knock, or it's a wind. A quickening, right? yeah. Yeah. Ooh, that's cool. Well, I like that because of where our, our section leaves us. The picture of Monsieur Bienvenu that we have at the end, he's kind of like a doctor. There's a lot of there's a lot of language. I actually had to look a word up. Did anybody else have to look up the word osculated? O- no, uh, auscultated. Yep. <laughs> there's another T in there. Auscultated. <laughs> yes. I thought, what the heck? I've never even read that word before. <laughs> Evidently, it means listening for the sounds of lungs and heart, etc. in a patient. So hmm. here he hmm. is. The line goes, one can no more pray too much than love too much. And like St. Teresa, he loved the poor and he listened to their needs like a doctor listens at the lungs of a patient. And Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it was a beautiful image, but put him primarily in a, a listening and feeling role rather than an Observing, intellectual yeah. enlightenment role. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yep, I do think that tension, the more we talk about it, is getting really, really clear between an enlightenment perspective and a romantic one. (laughs) Yeah. He says the whole world was to this good and rare priest, a permanent subject of sadness seeking to be consoled. So emotional again, like you were pointing out, Ian, he said, there are men who work for the extraction of gold. He worked for the extraction of pity. Yeah. The flirt to, to speak back to the, what I was pointing out with the flirtation with Gnosticism. It is like in this scene, like this is the counterpoint, right? He is, ministering to the body and in fact the the people are spoken of as a body that is sick Mm -hmm. uh, and he cares for it so that in itself would be a an argument against that he does seem to to love and and respect the body which makes sense of his conversations with the senator also when he when he responds and says materialism is excellent right he's 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 not saying not the body, but the mind, not the body, but the, the soul. He affirms it is good to be satisfied. Yeah. Well, if this is a, a backdrop, like an ideological backdrop that we've just gotten to see, I'm excited to see some, some real life characters walk around in this world he's just drawn. I don't think that's what we yeah. had just now. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, I don't think so either. <laughs> From my understanding, I do believe we are about to meet Jean Valjean. 
Excellent. Yeah, buddy. Let's go. Well, let us let us go off and meet him. Emily, I assume you have a reading schedule posted somewhere. I do. It's on the website, centerforlit.com slash H-E-E or he. he. Yep. Uh, but for next time, we're reading the second uh, part of book two, The Fall. You guys. Or the second part of book one, The Fall. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to ask, but then I answered my own question looking at the um, table of contents. Is is this first chapter we just read called Fontaine, this first book? Or is the entire section called Fontaine? And it's the second. This entire section is called Fontaine. And we've got multiple <laughs> books underneath. We just read An Upright yes. Man. Next, we're going to read The Fall. But all of this falls in the category of Fontaine's story, which I think might also right. help us when we come to a, a thematic interpretation of the whole section. Which Excellent. like that like sharpens that statement that we opened with though you are like you are known more by your reputation than by who you actually are. Like if you think of that in terms of if you like know the story if yeah, you, if you know what's in coming. terms of Fontaine, that's really powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you both for your insights and thank you listeners for joining us. As always, we'd love to hear from you. So hop on Facebook and join the group and let's talk about this great novel as we go along. Have a great week, and we will see you next time around on How to Eat an Elephant. Bon appétit. Bon Bon appétit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.